This episode is brought to you by Ninja RMM, the easiest RMM you will ever use. Ninja offers easy-to-use remote monitoring and management tailored to your needs as an MSP or IT professional with a full range of features, all within a single pane of glass. Ninja is trusted by over 2,000 partners across the globe and was built to scale up as fast as your business requires. Visit ninjarmm.com forward slash tub talk to sign up to a free trial and become an IT ninja today. You're listening to Tub Talk, the podcast for IT business owners with our featured conversation with Richard Tubb and John Honeyball of Woodley IT. My name's Jeff Nicholson, and this podcast is all about helping you grow your IT business. In this episode, Richard talks with John Honeyball, CEO of IT consultancy Woodleyside and contributing editor to PC Pro Magazine. You'll hear how John got started in IT journalism, what Woodleyside does for its clients, and what he thinks about modern technology. This episode was recorded between Richard at home in Newcastle and John at his office in Huntington, Cambridgeshire. And now, without further ado, here's Richard Tubb talking with John Honeyball. Hey folks, Richard Tubb here, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. He's somebody I've looked up to throughout my career in IT, and I'll admit it is a bit of a personal tech hero of mine. John Honeyball has been the contributing editor at PC Pro Magazine since 1994. His monthly real-world computing column is a must-read for anyone who works in the IT industry, as he covers what's right and what's wrong with the latest small business technology solutions. Uh, John is also the CEO of Woodleyside IT, a privately held consulting company based in Huntington, at Cambridgeshire in England. Uh, and um, Woodleyside specialise in IT consultancy, future-proofing, strategic direction, product evaluation, and hiring and firing. And I'm going to talk a lot more to John about that. John, what an honour it is to have you here as a guest on the podcast. Oh, heavens above, this is all very embarrassing, yes. <laughs> There's going to be plenty more moments when I make you blush during this podcast, I will, but uh, thank you uh, up front for all the fantastic content you put out over the years. I really appreciate it. Well, that's very kind. And it, it's, you know, writing this sort of stuff for so many years, you you tend not to get nice emails. You tend to get the, I read your column, and it, you are absolutely god-awful wrong, and how dare you, and... I think product X is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you're an idiot for thinking otherwise. And all you can do is sort of sigh and politely reply and say thank you so much for your feedback. Um, and um, but no, I mean yes, it's uh, it, 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 it's very kind of you, so I do appreciate it. Well, now let's start with PC Pro. Actually, let's start with the writing. So I've been a reader of PC Pro magazine since its early days. Uh, actually, you and I chatted before we came on air, and I said I can actually remember you being a contributor to a publication before that, Windows Magazine. Well, I actually, I was. I actually um, started my writing in. 1990 with a with a fortnightly magazine that's no longer around called pc user huh? and pc user was a great thing because it was more frequent than a monthly but it wasn't um so sort of daily news oriented like the, the sort of the daily uh, news titles at the time so i had time for real articles and 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 so forth and it was great fun it was um edited by chris long um who's still around and a good mate and um and it had a really sort of fun, slightly sort of um, uh, sort of pirate kind of feel to it in a sense. Uh, the back page column was sort of the latest sort of gossip and scandal of what they'd heard. And 
you know, and what had gone wrong on press events and who had said what about whom and all this sort of stuff. Um, and it had a real good community feel to it. And I loved it. It was a really good re read and I really looked forward to it. So being the nerd that I was, I, I started sort of writing in and saying, this article is rubbish because you haven't taken this into account or uh, you really can't believe that that's going to happen or, you know, stuff like this. And I quite frequently got the, um, the, the, the letter of the month, oh, sorry, the letter of the issue, because it was Fortnite, the letter of the Fortnite prize, which was supposed to be a book token. And for some strange reason, they never turned up in the post. <laughs> but I got the prize, but nothing ever happened. And then um, completely out of the blue, I had a phone call, and it was Chris Long on the phone, editor of, of PC User. And it was like, uh, hi. I was like, oh, gosh, wow, um, wow. Chris Long on the phone. And um, he said, would you like to come down and have lunch? And I said, sure why not so i trundled down to farringdon area where the editorial officers were and we went and had lunch and i sort of met the editorial team which looked complete chaos as all editorial <laughs> officers do and uh, we went out for lunch and we were sort of halfway through the dessert and said and chris said and uh, by the way i need the first one by the end of next week and i said somewhat perplexed the first what he said well you know all about this Windows stuff, so um, I want you to write a three-page column for us every issue. And it was like, you've got to be completely kidding. Uh, you know, I'd never written anything. I was dreadful at English at school. Um, uh, you know, C at O level kind of thing. I kind of scraped my way through. Um, and, and it was like, holy crap, I've now got to write three pages of publication stuff about Windows. How on earth am I going to do that? And Chris's advice was, just write the sort of stuff you've been writing in these very interesting um, emails to me, and um, it will be fine. Uh, and um, I, I wrote the first one and sent it in by fax, <laughs> which <laughs> went down like a lead balloon in the PC user editorial office. And I had, a, I had a note from Chris saying, you really need to get a modem and get on this thing called Kix, which those of us who have yeah. been around a long time will remember, Computing Information Exchange, which was kind of before the internet really happened. So it was a dial-up bulletin board thing here in the UK, um, akin to the well in San Francisco. In fact, very much similar, cozy software base behind it. And so I got onto that, and then you know the next column, I actually emailed him my copy, which was like, wow. Um, so that's how I got into it, and that was about 1990, and PC user did a redesign at the time um, to a more glossy format. And I got the first ever PC user gold award um, issued to a wonderful piece of software for a company down in uh, West London area called Threads that did a program called Organizer. And Threads Organizer looked like, um, looked like a file of facts on screen. Yeah. But the really clever bit was you could cross-link things between pages. You could, you could join up and then walk up and down the link. And I got to know the guys down there, and Gary Lavelle was the chief programmer. He was one of the first employees of uh, Microsoft UK. And then um, they managed to get themselves sold off to Lotus, and it became Lotus Organizer. So anyway, that, that was the early days then. Then I got tempted to go over and... Uh, write for Computer Buyer at Dennis Publishing. Mm. And then I met some people there. Um, bear in mind, this was not my full-time job. This was sort of something I did kind of evenings and weekends and stuff. And uh, over at Dennis, I met Felix, who was quite a character and is much, much missed. Uh, and uh, Computer Buyer was doing very well. It was kind of a license of the American Computer Buyer title at the time. Uh, back in the days, this is back in the days when paper adverts actually meant something, and rather than today where everything's on the web. 
Um, and we came up with this idea to do um, uh, a Windows magazine. Um, and we did this thing called Windows magazine, and it was great. We did it for about two years. And I ended up being the first ever Windows NT columnist in the world, which was really scary and spooky. Um, but it gave me a real sort of uh, feel for having a sandpit in which I could rant and rave. And then we took the very hard but ultimately correct decision to, to, to basically relaunch Windows Magazine as PC Pro. Uh, and we took the idea of the opinion columns and turned that into the real world columns of, of PC user. Uh, sorry, of, um, sorry, of uh, uh, PC Pro. And um, I helped... Um, identify some keen um, argumentative mates on kicks who, who um, <laughs> I thought had a good opinion. So people like Steve Cassidy and so forth and, uh, and Davey Wender for security and so forth. And, um, and basically we sort of launched this ship called PC, PC Pro. Um, we had a lot of competition because ZDNet brought uh, their titles into the UK in the mid-90s and spent a f huge amount of money on them. Um, to do PC Magazine, mm. um, and that failed. And we've basically ended up as the, the last ship standing, as it were, in the in the serious IT SM, um, SME space journal kind of thing. And so I've written RWC columns for every 200 and whatever we are now, 280-something months ever since. Um, and since about issue 60 or so, I think, I've done the back page column, uh, which is my another sort of area where I can sit and rant and rave. So that's kind of the PC, the PC Pro kind of angle, and and I just do it every month, and whatever has tickled my fancy or annoyed me or whatever gets thrown into my column. Yeah, and I I would say I would go as far well two things, two observations. Firstly, PC Pro is the only magazine that I know that I pick up and flick straight to the back page. Oh, you're too kind. So that's a testament to, uh, to your writing there. And I would say about the real world uh, columns, um, the real world computing columns, it's actually a predecessor to um, the podcasts and things that we have now. I mean, you and I were just chatting before we came on air and I said the feedback I get from people who uh, listen to this podcast is um, they enjoy feeling as though they're almost eavesdropping on a conversation between a, a couple of friends in a very polite way. I get the feeling with the real world computing columns that it is a conversation you know it feels as though yourself and steve and others are are speaking to the reader and you're you know just going over what, what's in your mind at the moment so uh, and i think that's the the key to longevity of it oh yeah i mean if, you, if you're too stuffy um then then people get bored and switch off and don't come back again um if you're too sort of stupid and irreverent people won't take you seriously it's a very fine balance mm. um I'm in no way suggesting I'm getting it right. Uh, it's just they haven't fired me yet. So <laughs> kind of, you know, after 280 or so months of doing this, um, I've I, either that or everyone's got used to me being stuck in a groove and put up with my foibles and quirks. So I, I don't know. It's just... <laughs> I think I, I know which one it is. I, think. I mean, I certainly would never consider myself to be a, you know, a professional journalist or, or, or talented writer or whatever. I, I, I did end up being... Um, shortlisted for the PPA columnist of the year and I lost against uh, Jeremy Clarkson a, oh. a few years ago but you know I, I, I just take the view that you know I, I can't start writing the column until I know what the stories are that I'm going to say so it really is um, uh, 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 a train of thought brain dump 
Mm. Um, and I kind of start and I, and I've got a list of topic and ideas and stuff. And I just keep writing till I hit the magic 26, 2700 words and things that got in, got in and things that didn't might come back next month or not or whatever, because these things move on and, you know, issues I might have this month may be resolved next month. Mm. Um, and you can't just keep harping on about something. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really, it's just a case of, trying to have a conversation, trying to explain it, trying to put a position. The other thing that's also worked very well for RWC is that, um, that uh, uh, we don't have to agree with each other. In fact, it's actually a good thing if we don't agree with each other. Yeah. And we also don't even have to agree with ourselves. Uh, what I mean by that is um, sometimes you take a position, you know, take a point of view and argue from that point of view. And it was an old meme from the kicks days that you really know a subject when you can argue it from one position for 15 minutes and then authoritatively argue it from the op opposite position for another 15 minutes. Because rarely is anything completely black and white or clear cut or whatever. There's always pros and cons. There's always reasons why stuff was done, even if they turn out to be bad reasons or bad outcomes. So sometimes I'll argue something, you know, from a position that I might not necessarily uh, agree with myself. but but it's a point of view. Yes. You know? And I kind of take the view that my job there is to make a contention or make a position or talk about something. And I want the reader to come away thinking, yeah, I understood something. I understood it and I learned something from that. I might not agree, but I understand why he said what he did. Yeah. And if I can do that, then I think I, I, I have fulfilled my remit. I absolutely agree. And, and and certainly, you know, I'm a huge fan of your writing, as I am mostly the real world columnist. In fact, I, I want to throw a quote out there. I said I'd make you blush a lot during this, uh, John. Another tech writer I hugely respect, uh, and in fact, another PC Pro, Pro contributor, Paul Ockenden, said of you, I wish I could write as well, as knowledgeably, and as engagingly as John does. That's quite a compliment, I think. So I know oh, you, that's very kind of him. Yes. I know you say that, uh, you know, um, uh, you, you're not a trained writer or anything like that, but I think it connects with the audience. So. Well, that's what you've got to try and do. And it seems to work. And I don't know why, but that's, you know, I just kind of do more of the same, really. Yeah. So one of the perks of having a podcast like this where I can bring on my uh, tech and business heroes like yourself, John, is that I get to get a bit of free consultancy. Ah, this. Okay. That's, that's actually the key to it. <laughs> So I'll share with you, as a long-time PC Pro reader, one of my professional bucket list goals is to have an article published in uh, PC Pro. And in right. fact, my buddy Ian Thornton-Trump managed it a few months ago, right. and I was really pleased for him. I was wildly jealous. Um, but any tips, on, any tips for me on achieving that goal, John? What does it look like? Oh, goodness me. Uh, well, firstly, um, it's not up to me. So you can start throwing the five pound notes in my direction, but I honestly, it won't help. Um, the person who decides all of that is Tim Danton, the editor, um, and get in contact with him. He is always looking for content, interesting stuff because that's, you know, that's his job. That's what it's all about. We do have a guest columnist column in RWC. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you've got something that would fit into that, you know, talking about something. You, you can't just sort of waffle on about world peace and, and hunger, important though they are. Um, you've got to have something, a story to say. If you've got a story to say that will fit into that remit and is interesting, then, um, you know, send it to Tim and, I'm, and I know for certain he will take it seriously. 
Oh, well, bless you for that advice. And I know the other reason, seriously, that I mentioned that up front is when I've shared that bucket list goal of mine, and it's a vanity goal, nothing more, you know, when I share that with other people, there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast who are um, bloggers, um, who are aspiring writers in their own right. And actually, you know, what's to stop anybody getting in touch with the editor of any magazine? Absolutely. You write to them, you know, write, write to me and I'll forward it on. If you don't know, you know, uh, if, if there's somebody that knows me, um, then write. It just... It takes me all of 10 seconds to forward an email. I'm more than happy to do so. Um, it's, you know, I feel it's part of my job to do that. I'm one of the faces of the magazine. My email address, um, or one of my email addresses, has been on the column, every column for 280-something months. So I'm not exactly difficult to get hold of. Um, and if you've got something or something's important, either it will end up as a letter in the next issue or it, you know, there's potential for a column space or something. You know, Yeah. Who absolutely. knows? Thank you for that. Now, let's turn this from my personal coaching and uh, um, bucket list achieving podcast uh, to talking business. You're, okay. as well as PC Pro uh, uh, contributor, you're also the CEO of Woodleyside. Uh, yep. This is a business you founded in 1985. Uh, goodness me. Uh, no, not quite. Uh, 1990. Okay. 1990. So let's rewind to 1990. Right. Um, how did you get started working for yourself? Um. Okay, well, actually, you kind of have to go back into my teenage years, unfortunately. Um, I was um, a pretty talented musician, pianist, and I studied as a classical pianist um, to a very high level. I was in the National Youth Orchestra for five, six years. Um, I studied with people like um, Pierre Boulez and Kirill Kondrashin, and my piano tutor was um, Maria Curcio in London, who was the only pupil of Artish Schnabel. So if you know classical piano world, you'll know those names. Um, I decided at the age of 16, 17, I didn't want to be a concert pianist. Um, I still have my Steinway in the next room, uh, but I decided I didn't want to do that. Um, I, was still, I was much more interested in how things worked. So, you know, I helped my dad service the car every week, the two cars every weekend, because they were old wrecks. We needed to service the most weekends to get them through the next week. Um, and um, I was really fascinated by broadcast engineering and recording. Um, so the choice at 18 really was, do I go to the BBC and become a trainee engineer? Because back then the BBC still had a very strong internal training uh, regime. Um, and um, I had an exceptionally good uh, uh, careers advisor at school who came up with information about a very small course at the University of Guildford attached to the music department called the Tommeister course, which at the time was the only broadcast engineering um, uh, sound recording uh, and music course in the UK. Nowadays, you can go and do music technology most anywhere. Um, and there's been a, an absolutely incredible democratization of that space as the prices of the, the technology has, has, has just collapsed. Um, but back then, there was one degree course, and I think there were five of us um, on my year. It was a very small department. And I went there, and as part of that, we had hooks with um, uh, various organizations uh, for which we were... Uh, uh, effectively very cheap expert listeners because you knew what we were listening to and we were students therefore you know you know four pound fifty in a packet of smarties and you'll go somewhere for the day and tell them what you thought of stuff so i started doing an awful lot of listening tests uh which involved a lot of the consumer organizations uh, around europe 
Um, and my industrial year, I worked for a guy in North London called Angus McKenzie, who had a lab at his house. And he was a legend in radio and broadcast. He, he actually had a column in Hi-Fi News and Record Review about radio. And he was taken very, very seriously by the BBC. And he was an amateur radio expert. And we did a whole technical book for um, the uh, Radio Society of Great Britain called The Buyer's Guide to Amateur Radio. Oh, this is all oh, going to be 33 years ago or something. But that got me heavily into um, computer control of technical instrumentation, Hewlett-Packard, Brillen um so forth, uh, Marconi. And we had a fantastic new prototype Marconi Spectrum, RF Spectrum Analyzer at the time. And I spent most of my year debugging before it came on sale. Um, and um, I went back to university for my final year, and I had an offer to go and join uh, Consumers Association, which to help set up their audio video telecoms lab in Harpenden which I did with uh, another good friend uh, who's, uh, who also had worked for Angus. Um, and after three years of doing that, I had got involved in um, international computer testing for them. And I basically, I was getting a bit tired of it. Um, I wanted, Windows 2 was still very big. I had Windows 2, I'd spent the 450 quid on the Windows 2 software development kit, and then the 400 quid on the C compiler, because back then, that's how much it cost. And then you open the package and realize that um, it was complete gobbledygook and told you nothing. So you then went and bought your copy of Petzold's Programming Windows book, which was the Bible. And he taught you how to write a, you know, a make file in, in a text editor and stuff. It was all very much roll it yourself. But I absorbed his book, and I found it completely fascinating as how, how a non-preemptive a multitasking operating system, a graphical operating system worked, and how all the message passing worked, and all of this sort of stuff. And I went to, so I went out, and, as I said, and I bought the software development kit and C and a, and a decent, um, one of the very first 38620 megahertz computers that came yeah. on the market, which was called the Samsung S800. And uh, I remember it had slots on the motherboard for eight megabytes of RAM. And it had an, a proprietary expansion slot into which you could slot another eight megabytes of RAM. So I contacted, I, I, I had done the unheard of thing, which was I contacted Samsung and said, well, I filled it with eight meg. Where do I buy the expansion card from? And they came back and rather sheepishly told me that um, they um, hadn't actually made any. They didn't <laughs> think anyone was going, actually going to be able to afford the nine to 16 megabytes of RAM. So I got quite upset with them. And I then went and bought the 387 Masco processor for it because I was doing a lot of stuff in vectors um, for reasons I'll come back to in a moment. And, um, and that didn't work either. So I got onto Samsung and I said, why can't I see my you know, 700 quid 387 processor in this box? And they said, ah, it needs a firmware update. So I remember driving down to Southwest London <laughs> and they gave me some, 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 uh, some, some EEPROMs on some, on some anti-static foam and plugged them in and my 387 came alive. Um, and anyway, I was absolutely fascinated by it. And I thought OS2 was, was, was on a hiding to nowhere. I thought it wasn't going to work. Um, it was the wrong thing at the wrong time. Uh, for, uh, for reasons, you know, we, we can go through, you know, it probably requires beer between us to do that. But uh, at, the t at the time, I thought OS2 286, OS2 386 wasn't going to provide what the industry needed at the time. And that Windows 3 that was coming was, and I was fascinated by, 
if you remember that weird thing called Windows 2386, which I basically... Don't, I don't know. Oh. I think my, my first exposure was Windows 3. Oh, okay. Windows 311, is that Windows for Workgroups, I believe? Yeah, yeah. Memory. Okay, yeah. so this was Windows 2, but running on a 32-bit on a, on a 386 a kind of quasi-virtualized uh, environment. And so you could actually run DOS programs um, preemptively multitasking, which was really, really cool. Um, and I thought, this is, this is where things are going to go. This is, this is what it's going to be about. And I was bored with what I was doing um, at the lab because I kind of done it all, been there, done that for a number of years, and I was very good at it, even though I say it myself. But I decided I wanted to spread my wings and do other stuff. Um, my parents had a consultancy company, actually, strangely enough, called Woodyside Consultants Limited. And my dad was a top international uh, management consultant working for people like um, Guinness in Dublin, Irish distillers, uh, all sorts of people. Um, he was on the Clegg Commission and he looked after the ambulance side of the Clegg Commission. Um, he was the only person who ran the Armed Forces pay review and so forth. It was a fabulous guy, uh, much missed. Um, and so I basically joined the family firm at 25 because mum did the accounts and, and, and I came in with to, to do a deal with my mum and dad, which was I would work for four months and cover my costs for the year. And then I could go off and do all my researchy bits for the other eight months of the year. And you can imagine what happened. I got to month five and the work was still coming in and I didn't stop. <laughs> and then I, after about six months, I realized I was learning a lot more and having far more fun doing the work out there than I was sitting at home, um, programming C and Windows. So uh, to cut a long story short, I launched myself out as kind of like a Windows expert, which kind of, which is at the same time got me into PC user writing about Windows every, every two weeks and all the inner guts of what was going on and what people needed to know. Um, and I made a lot of money in the city of London getting fonts to work. <laughs> Because <laughs> it was important back then, yeah. Well, you, you know, the, you, this, I know this sounds completely pathetic these days, but before we had TrueType, before we had Adobe Type Manager, um, LaserJets had um, basically bitmap fonts. Yes. The, the LaserJet 2 was the workhorse of business. And it had bitmap fonts, and you could get font cartridges you plugged in the front, and they were awful because they would only have a certain number of sizes and only a small number of typefaces. But if you even had one of those, everything went completely pants on screen because you didn't have screen fonts. Yeah. And I discovered how to generate and install soft fonts for Windows 3 and into the LaserJet 2 printer driver. Because strangely enough, like you wouldn't believe it today, there was a hidden menu in the LaserJet 2 printer driver, which if you knew where to click, opened up a whole bit where you could join up the soft fonts you generated. So if you took splined soft fonts um, and then generated the bitmaps, that's where the Mathco processor came in handy because um, you were doing curve, curve um, and bitmap uh, handling. Um, and I made I made a shedload of money for a few years <laughs> in London, just getting things to appear on screen as they would print out. And people thought this was a miracle. People thought I walked on water. It was hilarious. Um, and this was really important because Excel was out at the time, mm -hmm. um, in about 87-ish or so on Windows 2. Word for Windows shipped in December 1989. God, I'm so sad I remember this. And it was £449 per seat at the time and came on a lot of floppy disks 
with a hardbound manual, I remember. Um, but that ran on Windows 2, and then Windows 3 came out in April 1990. And then from there, uh, the whole thing sort of rolled forward, and I was really, really busy. Then this whole Windows NT thing happened in 1992, which was then Windows, but with a proper, un proper plumbing underneath it, a proper kernel, proper microkernel. And proper file system, this was NTFS, this was amazing. And I was right inside it. I was living and breathing it. And I was really busy at the time helping um, businesses um, make sense of this and deploy it and design and how are they going to change their networks? And what was this TCP IP, TCP IP thing? Because again, laughable though it may seem today, there was an awful lot of Netware 2.2 out there, which was running on IPX, SPX, which didn't scale. It was horrible. It was a bit was fine at the time, but it was, a, it was a real mess. And here we now had a server with a graphical user interface. Wow. Um, and it was a multi-core. It was multi-CPU supporting and cross-platform. It was it was miraculous. I will, I, I'm still trying to find a video of the original 19th, the July the 4th, July the 5th, Monday, July the 5th, or was it Monday, July the 4th? The Monday morning keynote at the 1992 first ever professional developers conference that was held at Moscone Center in San Francisco. And I went to it as press. And Dave Cutler came on, I mean, there was a waffle from Bill Gates to start off with. And then Cutler comes on stage, and there were 5,000 developers there who had paid a lot of money to go and see Cutler and see an operating system they'd never seen before. There had been no screenshots. There had been no information other than this was Cutler does Windows. And I remember he came on stage, and the, and the, 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 the clapping and hollering stopped, and he stood there, and he looked out at the audience, and he said, this is from my memory from a long time ago. He said, this is a proper operating system. <laughs> And it, the whole place erupted. Anyway, I've gone a bit sideways. Um, so I was spending the 90s doing an awful lot of Windows stuff um, in London, and, and that got me into sort of network consultancy and advising people what they should do. And then, of course, more things arrived. SQL Server came in off OS2. Uh, SQL Server was actually on OS2. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I'd done a, a prototype um, HR system uh, uh, for Guinness in Dublin. Uh, which used Access 1 as the front end against SQL Server on the back end. Um, and uh, I was very proud. There was only about 12 pages of code in the whole thing because I used the whole object model for click-through. And it was, it was time uh, independent. You could move time around and see what would happen to uh, all different departments and how the uh, workload would be and how many staff you had. And stuff. It was, it was really cool. I actually learned a huge amount from, from, from a guy I was working there who ended up the um, CTO of Diageo. Um, and uh, so I was doing all this sort of stuff, and it was great fun. And uh, I was writing for PC User and then into Windows Mag. I was on press trips. I was meeting Bill. I was meeting Steve Jobs. I was, you know, wow, this was, this was really rock and roll and fun. Um, and then more things came in. So we had Exchange Server arrive. Exchange Server 4 was the first version. Quite how they got to 4, I'm not sure. Mm. Um, I remember having lunch with Brad Silverberg, who was then the vice, senior vice president in charge of Windows 95, 98. And we went out to lunch, and he told me, we've just delayed the release of Exchange Server by nine months. And I said, why? He said, because we deployed it on site yesterday. It's gone very badly. <laughs> so, you know, this was Microsoft dogfooding in the, in the best traditions. So I had these wonderful contacts of really interesting people, and a lot of people who I've got, uh, lifelong friends, 
to, to, this, to this day. And, um, and then we had Exchange Server, then we had more stuff come into what became called Back Office. Yes. Um, and then my next sort of career move was in addition to what I did was um, we set up something called the Back Office User Group, which was, not, which was an independent thing, but we hosted it at Microsoft uh, in Reading every six weeks, I think it was, six to eight weeks, mm -hmm. a whole day. And we had both of um, we had both of the main projection rooms together. You could take the wall down in the middle, and the place was filled. And I gave the keynote and found the speakers and the topics and persuaded people inside Microsoft to come along and so forth. And that was great fun. And I was chair of the back office user group for about five years or so. Learned a huge amount from that. Um, and at this point, we'd gone into two thousands. Windows two thousand Active Directory had arrived, um, and I was very busy helping people decide how they were going to deploy Active Directory on a, a SME through to global basis, uh, because it was all new for everybody, unless you'd had Banyan Vines, of course, because Banyan Vines did that sort of directory. And let's not suggest for a moment that there is much similarity between Active Directory and Banyan Vines, despite the fact it was the same guy who was the programmer for both of them. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, they, Microsoft bought the, uh, the head of Banyan Vines in and he ran them, uh, the Windows 2000 Active Directory and also the Cairo work was all his. So and that takes us into the sort of the 2000s Active Directory and so forth. I'm getting busier and busier because I'm still doing product testing stuff for the various clients. And, um, I'm finding this is turning into a long, boring rant. I do. It's not. No, I can actually um, listen to this all day, and I'm, I okay. can pay you up front, John. I'm not alone. Okay. You know, please, please wave at me over the video camera, or put your fingers down your throat. Carry on, John. So, anyway, um, so we got into the 2000s big networks, um, and I felt I was not able to understand all of it anymore. Um, there was this wonderful sort of um, technological summer in the late 1990s, the NT4 server, starting of back office, starting of Active Directory, where you really could have a very strong grasp of all of the components that went into that platform. But as the platform grew and got more and more complicated and more and more stuff coming out, I felt I was kind of losing grip on what was going on at a code level, I didn't felt I didn't feel I could sit down and actually have an argument with somebody about bugs inside Active Directory anymore, or you know, um, the the um, uh, the, um, uh, the the systems management stuff. I did actually go over to Redmond uh, for oh three weeks or so and help them design the small business version of uh, of of. Systems Management Server, yes. uh, the one that because uh, the System Management Server existed as a sort of a corporate thing, and it existed as an on-premise single site thing. And I said, there's a huge market out there for people who want to basically spend all day in bed, but manage multiple small businesses. There absolutely is, and I I was one of them. I deployed rats. Uh, so the the version that came out, I persuaded Kirill, who was the head of that group, who then went off to become CTO of. Um, I think he went off to um, uh, VMware. Uh, but Kirill was head of the management stuff. Kirill, I can't remember his surname, Russian guy, very, very bright, nice guy. Um, and I persuaded him that what we needed was some way of rolling up multiple sites into some sort of managed overview such that you could then provide a service provision out 
it's kind of like early days of the cloud in a way. You could you could do a, a service provision and actually fix things on the sites of your customers yeah. before they even realised that a problem had happened. Well, it was a precursor. I mean, my, my niche is the managed service provider sure. industry. So nowadays, MSPs who are predominantly listening to this, uh, they're going to be very familiar with RMM tools, remote monitoring and yep. maintenance tools such as uh, SolarWinds and Kaseya and others. Yep. This was a predecessor almost, but from Microsoft. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, you know, they took it and ran it and it, it was successful and they sold quite a lot of it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I persuaded some mates to actually go off and set up little service businesses around that. And mm. they made, you know, good money and stayed in bed all day because <laughs> but you could stay in bed with your laptop and actually do all of this. You know, it, I think the more grown up ones did actually put some clothes on. But, you know, uh, you know, it, 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 was a, it was a new style of model and it was a precursor to sort of cloud based and, and rolled up um, uh, management console stuff, which is you know, obviously so hugely important today. So anyway, I felt I was kind of losing, um, not losing my touch, that sounds wrong, but losing the ability. There wasn't enough time in the day to learn all of these things. And so my consultancy went, basically went kind of upstairs. Um, I, was, I became very well known as the person who would sit there and just say, why? Or no? Or show me, prove it? or whatever. And so I was, I ended up doing a lot of sort of sea levels as today we would call sea level consultancy where I'll get brought in to sort of shout at people um, and point out the weaknesses of what they were doing and, and give them ideas as to what they could do better and so forth. And that was, you know, it was a slight more direction, but I had the track record of chairing the back office user group and so forth and the press angle and stuff. And, and I could, you know, genuinely turn up and add value. And, and that was great fun. Um, and I still do that. I mean, last week I spent all morning with a startup company who's working on a very interesting technical problem, which I think is going to make them an awful lot of money. But I, in, two, in a two-and-a-half-hour meeting, I highlighted a whole bunch of stuff they hadn't even started thinking about. Yeah. And which they've now gone, ooh, ah, ah gosh, yes, uh, right. Um, and I'm, I'm very good at challenging these sort of pre preconceptions that people have and the assumptions they've made in their design. Um, because fundamentally, if you go all the way back, what I've been really interested in is understanding how things worked. The reason I wanted to get into broadcast engineering was not because I wanted to go off and record things. I was fascinated by how these huge mixing desks worked and what all those knobs did. What did they do? What happened if you turn it? What happened on a video mixing desk by Grass Valley? You know, how did this actually work? What was the plumbing? What what was the? And it's that kind of um, visualization, and that sort of uh, deconstruction analysis and reconstruction is kind of what I do, what I've always done, and that's what underlies everything. So you know, I can look at a phone. I have got an iPhone, whatever this is, eight plus or whatever, and you know, uh, I I'm I. I need in my head to come up with a view about how good is this, but you can't just say, well, I like it. It's quite nice. It's by Apple. It's purple. You know, um, you have to be able to say, well, the screen is this good for these reasons. The battery life is good for those reasons. The performance is good for these reasons. The on-screen keyboard has got these problems and actually then sort of deconstruct the whole thing right down to the component pieces and then build up a model of what makes a, a great smartphone and then determine whether this is any good or not. So that's kind of what the lab does. Um, mm. And in Huntington, we have our lab and staff, and we probably handle about four or 500 pieces of stuff a year. 
So we handle just about every laptop that goes on sale, um, every tablet that goes on sale worldwide, smartphone stuff, uh, 4K TV, um, down into tricky areas like um, antivirus and security software, audio products. We have an IEC listening room, IEC viewing room space, so known calibrated acoustics. Um, and we are now what's called ISO 17025, which is a um, externally audited um, quality control process for laboratories. Um, and in fact, we actually had our annual um, shakeout last week, two days of them turning up, and they can go through anything down to the smallest cell in Excel or methodology or whatever and ask us to explain, justify, show the calibration routines, methodology, who is trained to do this and why and what their expertise is. And it's, it's really, really comprehensive. So we have a whole set of methodologies, but essentially what the lab does is um, you can give us something and we can sort of deconstruct it down, work out how good all of it is and put it all back together again. Mm. So quite a lot of the consultancy that I'm doing these days is, um, almost at a product level, which is what makes a good widget and a manufacturer may be working on one or doing some R and D into an area or writing some software for one or something. And they just really do desperately need an out of the box view, an independent views. Um, so many times over the last 30 years, I've seen software developments that has gone off the rails because the team is so inward looking. They never, Yes. Think of it from the outside. They never think, how the hell is the user going to use this? What's the end point here? And everyone gets lost in the, in the micro detail and gets, and even worse, especially in a larger corporation. And I will single out Microsoft as an example here where they get lost in the politics. Is this the in product at the moment? Is this the cute thing to do? Um, and think that good, good products have um, failed to come to market or actually kind of even worse, bad products have come to market um, simply for all the wrong reasons. And if I was going to take Microsoft, and I'm not, I'm not singling Microsoft out as being particularly bad here, you could find exactly the same for Cisco, exactly the same for HP, exactly the same for Lotus, exactly the same for IBM. It's, it, it, it is a trait of particularly large organizations. So if you were to take something like um, data storage, uh, file storage, your day-to-day -day unstructured stuff. Obviously, structured stuff goes really nicely into SQL Server, so we'll put that to one side, or Oracle, or whatever. Um, but your unstructured stuff that, that organizations live on. Now, we, if, let's go all the way back to 1990. We had um, FAT16 file system. Yes. Then we had FAT32. And let's go down that spread. We now have XFAT, okay? But... Then along comes Windows NT and we have NTFS. Great filing system. In fact, if you can ever find a copy of it, there is an excellent, super nerdy book by a lady called Helen Custer um, called Inside the Windows NTFS File System, which you really ought to read because it's, 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 a it's quite a thick paperback book all about the internal structures of NTFS written in 1992. We should have like, to uh, track that down and make sure it's in the show notes. I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure it's not available in, or it's certainly not in print it was from microsoft press yeah it, it won't be in print but you might find it on ebay or something and it's a great great little read as to the thinking process that went into what they wanted to do and the problems they were trying to solve and ntfs has been 
hugely successful all the way for you know for, for years and years and years. And you think of the trillions of bytes of data that's held on NTFS around the world. Anyway, so after that, we had um, structured storage server side was going to come out in NT 3.51. That got canned. Then we had the Kyle Cairo object file system system. Um, that got canned. That never came to market. Then we had a complete horror of something that you will remember from Exchange Server 4 and 5 called Drive M. Mm -hmm. Yes? Well, you could actually mount a drive letter into your Exchange Server store. I don't know what these guys and girls were smoking, but my <laughs> God, it was some strong stuff. Because if you ever went and did check disk against it, you wiped out your Exchange Server store. Mm. Um, so what comes after that? Uh, well, we then have well variations of Drive M. We then have... Uh, SharePoint server storage, oh my God, as in, as in OneDrive for business. Ugh. You know, so there's a OneDrive for business client for Mac that doesn't support the Mac file system, um, the Mac file system uh, character set. Duh. Um, we then had the whole WinFS debacle which, you know, was a huge amount of energy and work and never came to anything. And you do wonder in these sort of organizations whether it's sort of pet projects that, get, that run amok and some of them escape and some of them don't. And you wonder where the real sort of long-term strategic flow is, is what I'm coming back to. So, coming, you know, software companies get completely locked into their own little visions of reality. And, and very often it's, uh, it, it's refreshing to have an idiot like me come along <laughs> <laughs> sit there and basically say, uh, uh, why? What? 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 Sorry, run that pie. How? What are you doing? Really? <laughs> um, and, and, and either they, they sort of have light bulb moments and get it and suddenly realize that they've been doing really, really stupid assumptions or they get very angry. That can be quite amusing too. Um, and, and sometimes you just have to walk from it because they are so far up their own bottom that they're no, never going to see the light of day. Uh, and there's one particular project I've been involved in over the last year or so that frankly drove me nuts. And in the end, I had to walk away from it because they just didn't get it, you know. But those that do, it's fabulous. You let's feel... Let, yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute, actually, John, because, yeah. you know, we, 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 we talk, we've talked about your favorite tech. Uh, we've talked about tech that's just bloody awful. Uh, yep. we, we've got a mutual friend, Jane Lee, who works in yeah, PR, yeah. now retired. Uh, Jane told me that you're uh, really well respected and liked within the PR and the media community, and obviously you can see that. Uh, how do you approach telling a company that their product, essentially their baby, is ugly? How do you do that? Um, well, it kind of depends upon how the conversation has started. You know, sometimes you can have the CEO contact me and say, oh, could you come, come along and have a look? And you then go along. And, and, and then it's kind of like open warfare from day one because the CEO doesn't believe that the CTO knows what his team is doing. Um, or the CFO is really worried about how much money they're spending and it's not working. Or the CEO is really worried about or support cost or something yeah yeah and and at the end of the day you just basically have to tell it to them straight you know this is pig ugly it doesn't work it's completely unintuitive and what are you doing and either they will listen and take note or they'll throw you out the door well okay you know Shit happens. Um, th there is absolutely no point in saying, well, it's really quite nice, but, 
or um, just a little suggestion maybe you could think of maybe trying something no you just have to you know two, two barrels of the shotgun because there is never enough time to be polite about this you've just got to give it to them straight back it up with reasons why back it up with examples of, of what it's not doing right try to get them to see the light if you can great if you can't walk away and send the invoice in yeah. Um, it, 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 my job is not there to be nice to people. My job is there to tell them what I think. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, you know, there's um, John's two, John's famous two rules of consultancy, which is you charge like a wounded rhino. Um, and the other one is that if you're not embarrassed by the invoice, it's not enough. So on that basis, <laughs> that's gold know. right there. We'll, uh, we'll make sure that's a quotable for this episode. Um, and so from that point of view, you know, um, you're in for a day, so you're going to charge as much as possible. But that also means, because they might not invite you back, you know, they might decide you're, you're way too hot to handle. Um, and if you're going to put all the sort of intellectual and emotional energy into doing this and driving halfway, you know, across Europe or flying somewhere or whatever, um, you know, even a large bill doesn't actually turn out to be an awful lot once you've taken a flight out of it and, and two hotels. Um, uh, if you're lucky, you get them to pay for those as well. Uh, but it is incumbent upon me to go basically get, you know, a full, full gale force 10, rip this thing to pieces, work out what the component parts are, what it's doing, how it's supposed to work, what their intention is, what they were trying to achieve, then work out what the customer is probably going to want. Yes. Right. And then try and build a model in my head and on you know sheets of A3 paper as to whether this actually lines up or not. So it's kind of like a, a sanity check audit. Um, and those people that get it come out of it saying, um, you know, wow, that was really, really, you know, um, high bandwidth, intense and painful. Yeah, because if their product was lovely, you'd just sit there and say, "This is great. This is fab. What are you doing? This is fab, 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 fab. Massage ego, massage ego." And then walk out, and they're all going to say, "Well, why do we bother with that? We could have been doing some work that day." Um, we know it's fab, but the problem ones are people who believe it's fab and it's actually a crock of shit. Yes, um, it's unusable. It's unstable. Um, it doesn't do what the customer needs. Um, Let's pick up on something that you said earlier on there. Um, I know you pride yourself in understanding how the customer thinks, and you, you've just referred to that. Right. Uh, one of the quotes that I, I've, I've heard you say before is, we will find, and this is about Woodley side and yourself, we will find the things that your team overlooks, assumes, yep. or misunderstands. Yep. For me, this is an area that lots of IT companies, uh, especially IT professionals who are listening here, could learn from. How yep. would you say you learn to that skill to think how a customer thinks? Um, I, I wish there was a sort of a prescriptive list I could give you of, mm. you know, start here and go there or a book to go off and read. Um, honestly, I've made it up as I go along. What I mean by that is um, you, you have to have sort of the personal integrity to say, I want to take this apart. And, and it's like watchmaking. You sort of t take, take apart the pieces, look at the pieces and put them back together again. So um, uh, you know, something that, that drives me completely nuts, for example, is you check into a hotel and you're there at the at the desk and they they ask you for your name fine they found your record 65 mouse clicks later they can give you your room key 
right? What are they clicking on there? What, right? what, what are they doing? You know, mm. are they doing a personal profile of me? Um, don't like his shirts, you know, <laughs> shoes are a bit scruffy on a scale of one to, I don't know what, what the hell are they doing? Yeah. And why isn't it a, yes, Mr. Honeyball, boom, here's your room key. Fine. You know, and so the, there's a number of metrics. I mean, you, there's such obvious things like just how often are people having to interact with something or windows opening or closing or going repetitively around the same thing drives me nuts. Um, uh, it, I, I love little bits of automation. The problem is, of course, automation these days inside a business context is very much frowned upon because all the debacle that we had with, for example, Office and unsigned macros. Um, and, and I think there's been a, um, a huge swell of uh, good thinking that was happening inside businesses there that's, that's kind of being snuffed out. And for, all the, for, for good reasons, I get, but an unintended consequence. So how do, how do you work this out? The answer is, do you want to sit there and do this all day? You know, if, if it really does take 55 mouse clicks to check somebody into a hotel room, how many people are they checking in a day? How frequently are we giving these people new mice? Because they're going to be wearing them out, you know? Mm -hmm. Haven't we got better things for them to do? Even if it's sat there reading the newspaper, I'd rather them do that than repetitively do the same crap all over and over and over again. Um, and, and that's just one, one you know, small example. Um, no, I think I think you're right. I actually see the future again. Uh, going back to the managed service industry, I think tech is becoming so. I'm not going to say easy. That's not the right word. But consumers and businesses can deploy tech a lot easier than they um, uh, used to be able to. The days of crawling under desks and plugging cables and things that you know that's uh, pretty much all but gone for a lot of the yeah. IT professionals. But I see the future of the uh, the industry for managed service providers being looking at the processes within clients' businesses and saying. That's bloody stupid. That can be done more efficiently. You can save uh, money doing that. That really irritates customers. So, uh, you know, you've been doing this for a while, and I think actually yeah. this is where the industry is headed. I, I mean, the, the problem here, of course, is that if you're not careful, you'll start stepping on toes who weren't expecting it. So if, you, if you've got to be very careful with IT, that if you start stepping out of the IT role mm -hmm. into the business process, then who the hell are you? Yes. You know, and um, that can be very, very difficult. Um uh, and people can get very, can rightly get very upset because they'll turn around and say, well, you're mandating I should do this, but actually there's a whole bunch of complexity here you don't understand. So who the hell are you to tell me? Mm. Um, and, and that is always a problem. But um, it's, it, it, there is a difference here between internal process within an organization versus delivering something to a customer. If you're delivering something to a customer, then you basically put yourself in, in, in the shoes of that customer and say, what am I getting? Am I happy with this? Is this going to make my business better or worse? Yeah. Um, is this going to tie up my staff in knots? Is it so complex? I'm going to have to retrain my staff in order to do it. Am I going to have to turn my business processes around to fit within your assumptions of my business processes? Um, and I think delivering product to end customers is quite different from um, working on internal processes. Mm. Um, because there isn't then an external customer per se. Yes. And I think those are quite different spaces. And you're absolutely right. The things are getting much, much easier now. I mean, I haven't run Exchange Server in years because I run it as part of Office 365. Yeah. And 
you know, I, I don't worry about Office 365 backing up my Exchange server because a little miracle occurs in the cloud and it all kind of all happens. Of course, I make sure I've got local copies of it and it's all on tape as well. But nevertheless, um, uh, but, but, but nevertheless, um, uh, yeah, things are very easy. The problem in that space is that it becomes very uh, tempting to stop asking why, where, how, what the impact of this is going to be. Um, and just, uh, and you know, whole global populations can get sucked into this. If you think, I mean, I gave a speech recently to the British Computer Science Society up in Manchester um, on uh, Facebook and why you are the product and why it's all too late. Yes. Because even if we get Facebook to start acting like something other than global sociopaths, they've still got so much data. You know, it's going to take two generations. Even if we cut them off of the knees today, it will take two generations before that data is actually flushed out. Yeah, the horse has already bolted, hasn't it? It's, it's, yeah. it's bolted, gone over the hill and gone. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and so people just will, will accept stuff. And that's also true in IT. People will sign up to stuff. And for all the wrong reasons. I mean, I, I have a huge fear for the future of NHS IT, for example, which is that as money gets more and more constrained within um, the NHS's budget, uh, for you know all very good reasons, aging population, blah, 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 all the stuff that we all know, um, IT will get increasingly squeezed and someone like Google or Microsoft will come along with a you know, artificially cheap solution and the minister will say, well, that looks like a bargain and sign on the bottom line without realizing that now all of a sudden the NHS data is residing in Arizona. Um, and these sorts of things should matter. So yeah, I do worry about the, the, the democratization and the ease of doing stuff. And whilst I love the move to the cloud, I also have got some, some, some very deep-seated concerns about a lot of it. Because... You know, it, 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 if if the NSA or GCHQ really wanted to know what I had on my network in my lab, they'll come on, they'll turn up at five o'clock in the morning with some transit vans and some police, and they'll take everything out of the building with a plug on it. Um, if they really were genuinely interested, it's that's not the worry I've got. It's it's the worry that stuff leaks, stuff gets concatenated together, gets munged and filtered, and quasi-anonymized but isn't really anonymized and you'll end up in some great data silo somewhere and you have no idea how that happened yeah. and no, no means whatsoever of un unwinding it and that is really quite scary mm. it is a concern and i think we could probably record a whole podcast oh, talking could, yeah. just about that i, I want to jump uh, rewind a little bit um, sure. let, let's talk about the well let's not talk about the labs but I'd, I'd love you to if you can so we can include them in the show notes for the listeners to get across some photographs of what the labs look like over there at Woodley side because I think uh, be okay I'll difficult. see what I can do yep fabulous um, I, I've got some nice pretty ones when we moved in um, <laughs> which look very very tiny so in its best light then, in yeah. its best light uh, yeah I, I, I can do that it doesn't look like that now but the problem with it now is we've got all sorts of stuff there of which I couldn't put in the photograph so yeah uh, <laughs> and I can't clear the building out so what, what's the favorite bit of tech that's come through the labs for you recently the tech that you can talk about out there um um, give me a time frame when you say recently. Uh, within, the, within the last 12 months. Oh, what's okay. a piece of tech that's excited you that, you know, you've not looked at and, and uh, instinctively seen the, the faults or the flaws, but you've looked at and gone, for me, this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I mean, it would be it would be very sort of blase to say, oh, I think you know this new Surface Pro Four is really lovely and it's got a really nice keyboard. No, I mean, all of that stuff to me is is, is basically repetitive plumbing, um, and it and it's it's derivative and it's not particularly interesting. Um, uh, stuff that I think has been interesting but is horribly underdeveloped. Things like the voice control of things like Amazon Alexa. Mm. Um, Oh, mine's lit up. Come on, you're going to shout at me now, aren't you? Um, see, see I, I, I just mentioned that. I do another podcast with a friend of mine, Carl Palachuk, for a, for a company called Ovig over in Canada. And we mention Alexa quite a lot. And yep. um, so I always whisper, Alexa, so yep. that she doesn't sort of beep and you're in any... at me. Yeah, we've actually, we've actually had complaints from listeners saying, what, why are you whispering? <laughs> well, that's the reason there, right there. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that kind of stuff, I think, has impacted an enormous number of people in a very positive way. Yeah, um, it's fantastically immature. It's badly thought through. There's a whole heap of questions that aren't being answered, like that issue a few weeks ago, months ago, where um, uh, it, uh, where a, a recording ended up in someone's inbox because yes. the system recorded it and decided that actually you had sent email it to Fred or something. And I've yet to see, maybe it has come out and I've missed it, but I have yet to see a, a truly credible answer from Amazon as to why that happened. And I think they're probably not prepared to open the kimono and explain why it thought what it was doing was the right thing, because that would be um, either, com either very embarrassing or a competitive advantage to the other people in that space. Nevertheless, that kind of tech, I think, is really interesting. But, you know, is it really that cute? You know, I can, I can sit here and tell our A friend to turn off the kitchen lights and they'll switch off. And, well, that's great. That just saves me going over there and pressing a, pressing a light switch. Um, where I think we will get really, really transformative and really scary is um, technology like that. Right, okay, so you're showing me a little white um, button Thing. that's attached to your arm, yeah. Uh, attached to my arm, and that's measuring my blood sugar level. I'm type mm -hmm. 2 diabetic, um, and it's measuring my, type, uh, my blood sugar level. And in fact, I can hear uh, with my iPhone, because the latest iPhones have actually got NFC readers in them, and I can go, ba-boom, and it's just given me a graph of my blood sugar level this morning. This type of tech and, and stuff that's coming down those down those uh, similar paths is truly life-changing. If you yes. consider that um, a third of the population of the world will end up type 2 diabetic, and managing that has, has, is effectively now, the, arguably, the number one health issue affecting the NHS and health uh, solutions worldwide. Um, so monitoring this stuff, this is where tech gets really, really interesting and exciting and where massive um, uh, change and improvements are happening almost on a daily basis. Um, and that's really interesting stuff. And, you know, I can, I can tie it into my phone and I can, I can uh, 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 look after the data. I mean, in this particular case, the data is going off to a cloud provision from the manufacturer of this device and do i trust them no um but i try and keep the minimal amount of data in there you know you you have to be careful of this stuff so i think the whole healthcare stuff but the, the, the monumental downside of this is the whole health um uh data security issue yes. which is 
as as wonderful as the solutions will be, are a whole different level of terrifying on top, um, because this you know a, a, a data leak of your last fifteen years of your health profile in real time uh, could seriously screw your life. Yeah, um, and I don't believe you know if we're talking here about an NHS that managed to have WannaCry run across its entire internal network and, and stomp on things, um, I really do worry as to who is actually competent to look after this stuff mm. but we have a huge need for it yeah um, I, I actually used to work for the nhs uh, information authority as it was called back then going back sort of 20 years or whatever sure. and it sort of terrified me even then shall we say and my yeah. gut feeling is um some things have changed for the better but some things not so much so, so i mean th- there's all this sort of stuff that's you know being plumbed together i can i can shout at my a box and get it to play me something from spotify so music is no longer something you have to go and find an lp or a cd you can stream it from spotify or tidal or whatever this whole ip connectedness of stuff sky for example moving over almost wholly onto ip transfer yeah. Yeah. Um, so you won't, uh, I believe, shortly you won't even need to have a dish. Um, this is all really interesting stuff. Um, and it also throws into question a whole pile of previous decisions, like was DAB a good idea or not? Mm. Um, and, you know, so this is all sort of really fun, funky stuff. Um, I'm on the hunt at the moment for what I would consider to be um, credible home security firewalling hardware and software because i think there's nothing out there that is even vaguely competent um and the same applies to the to to, to the sme market if you're a big boy you're running cisco and you've got staff and you've got staff who's monitoring it in real time um my entire network here across four physical sites uh, is cisco meraki um which i love dearly but by god it's expensive Mm. um and we need something with that kind of capability pushed down to the sme level and then pushed down into the home level we need a complete rethink about how we deal with home security um how we deal with little johnny in his bedroom um uh, having got some malware on his Windows laptop, and how do we even find out and manage this? Um, we need to th- be deeply scared about IoT. Um, and the home is your castle. The, this box thing service should be um, should be the drawbridge into your house. And yeah. no one's looking at that seriously. And there's a there's a, it is an almost limitless untapped market there. Um, and, and a huge SME market. What was the figure I saw recently? Something 80-something percent of people in the UK work for businesses of 10 people or less. Yes. I mean, the SME market is huge and being incredibly badly served by the telcos who just don't want to go there, the ISPs who just don't want to go there. Um, mention the word liability and they run away. Um, and you look at the sort of the, your Netgear router or your this or your that, and they're basically junk. They're, they're, they really are quite poor. Mm. And even those like Linksys that sometimes make a bit of an effort, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty cursory. It's pretty thin. And um, that is a whole explorational space of how are we going to work with Joe Public to make that work? How are we going to work with Joe SME to yeah. make this work? Who doesn't, want to know how this stuff works 
and doesn't want to learn. And I think uh, the trust word is not spoken enough at, at all levels of IT. Why should I trust you to do what you're claiming to do? Why should I trust you to have a workable solution? Why should I trust you with my data? Why should I trust you with my business processes? And there's far, far too much arm waving and far too much presumption and not enough deliverables and hard data and, and uh, consequences. Mm. Um, and uh, the, the trust word for me is the big, big deal between here and 2040. So everything will be determined in, in, in its determination of trust in that time frame. Mm. Um, not price, not, not um, QoS, not these things. It will simply be one of why, why should I be having a relationship with you in whatever way, level, form. Um, and we... You know, having looked at so much stuff over the years, so many thousands upon tens and tens of thousands of products over the years, um, I think it's perfectly reasonable that the vast majority of the consumers of this stuff shouldn't have to give a damn about it. Yes. It should just work. It should work reliably, and it should work with their interests in heart, at heart. Um, and the reality is, you know, it was fun back in the 90s. We were all like cowboys. We were all, you know, we were all going west across the great uncharted plains of, of, of IT North America, you know? I mean, and, and we were having a riot and it was great fun and it was nerdy and geeky and fab. Um, and today that just doesn't wash anymore. Yes. And in, in, in a sense, you know, coming back to your question about how do you recognize whether something is, is, is going to work or not, you have to ask yourself the question, if I don't give a damn about this thing, will it still work for me? Um, and most stuff doesn't. Um, and companies are very good at putting a veneer on things. Go, go and look at, let's, let's take a good example, Office 365, right? Um, they've taken what was a horrendous mess and turned it into something that's, you know, there's an, there's an awful lot of sticking plaster and, and blue tack and glue and bubble gum involved in it, but it does kind of hang together as a platform. Now just go and say, I want to go and change the filtering of incoming messaging on Exchange Server. And you suddenly get exposed to sort of quite a nasty reality. Um, a good one recently um, um, I got mail spammed by a PR company who did the cardinal sin of putting 300 email addresses in the CC list. Yeah. Not yes. The CC list. Yeah. I see it a lot. Yes. Well, okay. It was even more embarrassing because it was for a London college where the email was about the uh, appointment of the new professor of computer security. And his long winded rant in the email was all about how computer security was huge, important, and that. Oh dear. Oh dear. And the PR person had managed to spam most of tech press worldwide on a, on a CC list. Um, and so I thought, surely, surely, inside Office 365, there's going to be a setting which says if there's more than five people on, on, the, on the named address list, don't send it. Yeah, it's obvious. You would have thought so. Yeah. And I went digging, and I can't find it. 
I can't find it at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, Office three, uh, most, uh, I know Google Apps does this. If I send an email and say, please find the attachment, it's smart enough to go, by the way, you've not attached anything. Did you really want to send that? Yeah. And so, so yeah. that's a lot of this sort of smart stuff where, you, you know, I, I do understand the problem in this particular case. Microsoft has got that it's trying to build this cloud ecosystem thing and it's you know as the old irish saying is if you wanted to, to get there you wouldn't start from here but you know that's what they've got yeah and they've done an incredible job of bolting it all together i'm not knocking it but but you know is that really what i wanted is that really how i want to to work and sometimes you get the temptation it'd be really nice just to have a chromebook and a, and a browser and a, um, of which, of which I do, I have a know, Chromebook, but we—that's a conversation. Can I really be bothered with all of this, you know. And, and <laughs> so, so this, this, this whole thing about um, there are far more cust customers, both real and potential, who don't want to learn about this stuff than those yeah. that do. And if you consider it as a classic sort of normal distribution curve, um, looking at it from your direction, you've got, you've got the uber nerds down here at the top end, and then you've got the people from the 50% mark downwards who are at some level of, of disinterest through to abject hostility, yeah? And IT has kind of gone somewhere up that curve. I really don't think it's, apart from some of the smartphone work, and I would certainly put iOS into this space and some elements of Android to get near to the middle. And there's a huge untapped space out there of people who just just don't want to know about this stuff, but need it. Like, like for example, uh, um, uh, an, uh, an IP fortress for their home. You know, every household in this country that's got an ADSL line needs that. And what proportion of the public do you think actually gives a damn? Mm. Or should give a damn, and it's no good sitting here saying, "Well, you've got to learn what a what a routing table is, and you've got to know what inbound routes mean, and what filtering is, and and what was it, was it was it TCP or was it UDP?" And, and you know all of this stuff, they just don't care. But what they want to know is that you know um, the, the smart TV in little Gemma's bedroom, aged eight is now for some reason the camera is active and it's streaming video to Moscow, right? And if you can't do that, if there's no concept of time, and this is different to how it was, something has changed, yeah? If we can't even get that bit right at the most simplistic level, where the hell are we going to go? Mm, I think this is this is a topic we could talk. Oh, we could do at length about. I'm, so I'm, to come I'm very very conscious of your time and fine. mine. Um, I can't let you go right. without talking about something that's not IT related at right. all, but it's fascinating. I know you're a married man. Uh, your husband Andre is incredibly, yep. incredibly successful in his own right. Uh, Including a range of pickles in Well, we have a pickles and condiments company called Man Food. So I've got to know more about that. And what's it like having two successful entrepreneurs well, in the, the same household job? We've been doing Man Food for about five years now, and it all came about because I couldn't buy a decent piccalilli. And so I said to her, I couldn't buy a decent piccalilli worth putting on a plate. Um, it was all mushy and horrible and nuclear yellow and had a horrible bitter aftertaste. So I said to Andre one day, how hard can this be? Which is a really <laughs> stupid thing to say. And then we... Um, he made some and we had far too much. So we gave it to friends and family and they came back and said, can we have some more please? And then I started doing Saturday morning um, farmer's markets at St. Ives here and at uh, Ely. And we kind of launched a brand and thought this is fun and funky. And 
now we have staff and warehousing and kitchens and outsource manufacture and we sell to people like um liberties in london and um i'd have to check where else we are uh i think fortnum mason and selfridges and Ocado and all sort of top um farm and farm shop and deli places and we're exporting to germany and we're exporting to switzerland and moscow we've just signed a deal with a company in moscow and we've sent stuff to new zealand and canada and we have 28 products of pickles and we've done mad things like take real ale and reduced it onto a spoon into a jelly form and all this sort of madness and it's great fun um it's just about stopped consuming money now just about and we've invested a, a very you know healthy six-figure sum into it but that's what you need to do if you want to bring a a, a product a range of brand to market and hopefully someone's going to come along and say oh my god this is fabulous i need to buy this and write us an enormous check um and it's been a huge learning experience, obviously, doing the whole thing. Things that we've done right, things that we've done wrong, but you don't know till you try. And it's very easy to sit on the sidelines and say, well, you know, we could have done that, but we didn't. Well, we have actually gone out and tried to do this. So um, manfood.com or we love manfood.com, you can buy from us and we will ship to you directly by glorious courier. I, um, I love it. And I don't think anybody saw that coming at the end of this podcast, which is why... <laughs> no, I mean, why, so to answer, actually answer your question, what, what's it like? And the answer is, well, truthfully, if you've got two people, I mean, Andre's a director of my company and I'm a director of his company and so forth. So di dinner and stuff, there is always an element of sort of a, a dinner and a boardroom discussion as to what we're doing, where we're at, what we have to do. Because uh, during the working day, we're both busy doing our own stuff. Um, but, you know, we email and SMS and all the rest of it. So it's, it's good fun. I would certainly recommend it um, if you're brave enough or mad enough to want to try and do it. Um, and uh yeah so it's 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 a completely different space for me and it's 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 great fun and interesting i love it. and you'll sometimes find me in places like i don't know uh you know top food places or international food exhibitions in cologne or whatever on our stand and come along and have a taste lovely i look forward to it look john it's been an incredible pleasure for me to spend time with you today i know this will make you blush i know we've made you blush a lot of times but you've genuinely been a tech hero to me all of my career in it as a young man i followed your writing and i aspired to be a consultant like yourself <laughs> now i'm not so young a man but i am a consultant and i still aspire to be half as cool well oh, i wouldn't go that far please <laughs> i mean well thank you very much for the kind words it really is appreciated um, as i said i I've just sort of like try and trundle along doing what I do with integrity. And when people ask me an opinion of something, I tell them how it is. And that doesn't mean to say I'm right. There is very rarely right and wrong in this world. But you, you give an opinion and you have to give it from your heart and you have to give it with clarity. And, um, and if that just improves the directions that people are taking, then it's worth doing. If anybody listening wants to reach out to you to continue this conversation, we've covered a lot of ground here, but how can they find you online? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, so you'll find me there. Um, John at JohnHoneyball.com, I think, is on every PC Pro column you yeah. have ever done. Uh, lab at WoodleySide.com will get me. Um, it's not hard to find an email address for me. Um, drop me a mail. Always say hello, um, even if it's just to say, I read your column and I think you're talking bollocks. Um, that's still... <laughs> You know, <laughs> bracing, but interesting. Um, so no, 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 absolutely. Please get in contact and uh, anyone who wants some help or some ideas or whatever, always happy to talk. Cheers, mate. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to Tub Talk, the podcast for IT business owners. You can find the show notes and bonus content for this interview, along with dozens of other interviews with IT business leaders over at www.tubblog.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, then we'd really appreciate you rating and reviewing the show over at iTunes. Every review helps us reach new listeners and helps raise the bar for success in the IT industry. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show as much as we did. Tune in for our next episode when Richard speaks to his latest guest for more valuable insights into the world of business and IT. This episode is sponsored by Ninja RMM, the easiest RMM you will ever use. Ninja focuses on simplifying your life as an MSP or IT professional. Are you moving from a break-fix model to fully manage your assets? Have you already embraced the world of managed services and are looking to expand your portfolio? Well, Ninja's platform combines monitoring, alerting, antivirus patching, and IT automation, providing your business with a single pane of glass for managing multiple devices across various environments. Visit ninjarmm.com forward slash tubtalk and become an IT ninja today. And mention you are coming from Tubtalk. Ninja will have a special offer ready for you.